This episode is sponsored by Anchor.fm. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. So let me explain. Basically, it's free. Secondly, there's creation tools that allow you to record and also edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. And after which, Anchor will automatically distribute your podcast for you. So it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other platforms. You can also make money from your podcast with literally no minimum listenership. So it's everything you basically need in a podcast in one place. So go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started today. Timo is a German Luxembourgish language fanatic, philosopher, journalist, poet, and book author. He has studied psychology, philosophy, and political science at Trier University, where he completed his bachelor in the latter two subjects. Thank you for your invitation. It's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, amazing. How are you doing? How is everything going? It's going fine. It's the end of the year. So, yes, uh, let's see what 2021 is going to bring us. Yeah. How about you? <laughs> so, uh, to tell me more about your uh, interest in philosophy as a broader science, but I also saw that you are very interested in ontology and Platonism and Hasidic philosophy. So it would be really good to know more about these subjects from you. You know, at first, let's start straight at the beginning. Right. Um, today, we are, we are in a very globalized world, which means we, have, we luckily have the means to study all kinds of things internationally, not just from one viewpoint, but from many different viewpoints. This is a great advantage we have today. Yeah. And in every, in every kind of continent, you have, you have a beginning of philosophy. It's always, it's always something different, like with, with the Greek philosophy. You can go, of course, you can go beyond Plato, but it's like with Plato, we identify the Western civilization. That's, that's, the, one, that's the one thing. But of course, it's interesting to see there are also a lot of, it's not just, I mean, it's sad that there's a, often just a focus on Europe. We have a very, very globalized world and we can see everywhere. And if we compare it, we can see that we find similarities. And one similarity is very interesting. It starts with pre-Socratic philosophy, uh, which is like the very first philosophy that we know in the West, in the, in, at least in Greece. And the interesting stuff about this kind of philosophy is it starts with like, what is the world about? What is the world actually? My, I mean, how is, to understand the world, you have to know how it started. So they, so they all tested different elements. And if you look like to the East, you find exactly the same. It starts like in, in China and India, the first questions were like, how did it start? What are the elements? You find this clearly in Taoism. You find this clearly also in Hinduism. There are, of course, from time to time, things get, uh, um, it's a correlation between philosophy and mythology, of course. Because we have it like this. In the very beginning, 
you did not write down everything. We nowadays we can write down everything. We did not have this possibility like this in the past. So you had limited resources, which means whatever you write down, it was considered important. And so many things were actually told orally. And this is very interesting because on the one hand, mythology and philosophy are not the same. They are to a certain kind contradicted because philosophy questions everything, while mythology tells a story which always continues. It's very simple. Imagine you tell something, your, your, your grandmother has a story and she tells it to your mother. Then she, is, she tells something what she thinks like is important of the story. So there's automatically a certain loss because she will probably not remember certain details of the story or she thinks a certain detail is not important. On the other hand, probably there's something that she thinks is the core of the story. She will emphasize this and she will tell you. So your mother does not know the original story anymore. She knows the story the way the grandmother perceived it. Now she's going to tell you the story again she will find her own information because on the one hand, she will forget something. So this is lost. On the other hand, maybe she thinks to remember something and it is wrong. So she adds something. And on the other hand, she might emphasize something because she thinks it's important. So you have another version of the story. And then she tells it to you. So she tells this to you. And then you will probably tell it to your children. And again, you think like, what did my mother tell me? And you know, this always continues, this oral tradition. And this way, some, mis some wisdom, it's disappeared like or it was covered in mythology. And on the other hand, philosophy, it always questions, the, it questions everything. So while the mythology is an oral tradition going on and from time to time, it gets, it's not a religion, it's not automatically a religion, but it gets religious qualities because so you probably probably sometimes you talk of, of giants and of mysterious beings that just get inside there because from the time to time if you retell something it always changes so there will also be details that we know are not taken literally and on the other hand philosophy tries to get the core the knowledge so it will also question mythological, mythological tradition it will question religious tradition. But on the other hand, you see with Plato that he uses the myths as well. So he's not the guy who says just, I question everything, of course he does, but also he says some things are not easy to explain. So what does he do? He takes a myth. You find the myth of R in the Republic, you find a myth in the Gorgias, it's a common stylistic device. So this is like the beginning that begins with an interaction of philosophy, like asking, you want to understand the world, and of course, of what you think to know, which is often, it was often told in mythology because that was the way to, to inform common knowledge. And you find this kind everywhere in the world. And if you look at the philosophical traditions, the mythological traditions, the religious traditions, there's, you see they, are, they came they became connected within the time because it is clear, for example, that Buddhist philosophy is not imagined, it can't be imagined without Buddhism. On the other hand, you don't need to be a religious Buddhist to find truths in Buddhist philosophy. So you see, you nowadays you are trying to 
separate these things again. But there was a time where all this came together because it became one entity, one societal understanding. So the ideas we have about morality, they got told in mythology and folklore. At the same time, we had views about how we imagine the world. It was also common part in religion. And of course, we always had thinkers who questioned, like, isn't there more? Or do we really know everything what was told in, in this mythology? And they really asked these things to a certain extent. Of course, it's difficult to say now what was first, or to, because you know we are in a way of reconstructing. It's you cannot all, you don't have all the proofs and hints, but it must be in this way somehow that that we have these three parts of interaction and. I'm a very curious person about this, not just to look at Western, because, but also on Eastern and on other, other parts of the world. And I saw certain similarities where I thought like, hey, we should, we should try to, I, I should, at least for me, it was useful to incorporate them in my pattern of thought because they, they moved me forward. And that's what philosophy is. It's something, it's a personal thing at first, because you don't do this, for someone else, you've reasoned because you yourself have a question, you are seeking for answers. And in this way, of course, philosophy, if done correctly, even for Plato, philosophy, it, it is useless without a philosophical attitude. You have to have a philosophical attitude, which means you're not just someone who repeats what you've learned, like what you've learned in school, but you are conducting reasoning on your own. And you're trying to find reasoning on your own. And this is the it's an important part, this philosophical attitude. And this is like the core of, of what, what I think is important. Yeah, no, that's very true that um, oral tradition dictates how mythology still exists within our society, pretty much. And obviously, philosophy, on the other hand, has a analytical element to it that it examines or what is the essence of object X, you know? So we always have uh, a bit of analysis going on within philosophy, but mythologies are strictly passed on through oral traditions or have survived through oral tradition. And they're all stories, as you said. And so, yes, definitely philosophy is a personal, um, you know, entanglement at first, and then, you know, we develop our own theories, we develop our own uh, ideas about the world. So, uh, like, I read some of your work uh, about Platonism and uh, Kassidic philosophy. So I was wondering, like, how did you uh, get into Kassidic philosophy? And how did you develop your own theories and ideas? Um, I remember you discussed uh, Yogacara Buddhism. Um, within, you know, first of you, one of your articles, and I was really interested in knowing how you connect all these uh, different traditions, like the Jewish tradition and with Buddhist tradition, and you connect all of them and form your own ideology or your own uh, explanation for the way these religious uh, philosophies still exist. At first, I want to say it's not an ideology. It's very important because it's if you have to see ideology is often pointed at teaching something. It's like you notice often in ideology, it's like you found something and you want others to adapt. While philosophy is always 
it's not finished yet. My ideology wants to wants to teach a closed pattern. You know, you find this very often in, for example, in state ideologies. It's not that you question the state ideology, but the state justifies why it works like this. And people in the state should, for example, through the constitution, they should adapt. Of course, this is nothing bad because we need basis. So it's a question of whether it's an open ideology or a closed one. An open means that a society can still transform. It means like this is often in pluralist societies, you have a basis, a constitutional basis, yeah, but you can still reason. And then there are closed ideologies where you are, where you have to follow. And of course, I mean, if you understand ideology as something where you have to follow or something a closed pattern. Then, it, then it's not what I what I mean. It's clearly meant to be a philosophy in the sense of that, of, uh, of proposing some thoughts. But I am by far, of course, convinced that most of my readers they will not accept it one by one. They just see like, oh, there's a good idea. Let me think of it. And if they do it, then the work is done. Because if I just write for being word by word accepted then I'm not a philosopher, then I'm a kind of person who doctrinates. I don't want to be like that. I want that people read it and they think by themselves what they think is right and what is wrong. And the key about Buddhism and Judaism is actually very interesting because both seem to be very close to me. Judaism and Buddhism, they certainly have some links, which is not surprising because Judaism is a religion from Israel, it's Israel is geographically in Asia and let's say India is not far away if you, of course it's far away but because there are several countries in between but even in the ancient times there were traveling routes, there were merchants and Buddhism was also a major religion which reached till Afghanistan so it, it became really it became very close to the to the Near East and to in also Near Eastern countries so it wasn't actually not that far away that when the traders could bring different ideas and so on. And we find the same thing with Platonism. Platonism was, of course, it has, has its roots in Greece, but Greece and Israel are also not too far away. And there was a time when Israel was Hellenized. This is a very important time because um, you, you find this in Jewish literature that there was a time where people who were, let's say, if I say purist, it's maybe a bit, I don't want to give it a connotation, you know, they are more traditional. They wanted to, they wanted to conserve their roots. And there were others who were open to the Greek ideas, the Hellenized. So you had like two, two factions, the ones who said, okay, Judaism and the Greek philosophy fits well together. And there were others who said, let's not, Let's preserve what we have. And you find it's, it's very interesting if you look in the, in the Tanakh or for the Christians in the Old Testament, you find a very, very interesting future. In the, in the works that were written very early, you find one word for uh, the kind of afterlife. It's Sheol in Hebrew. It's a kind of every, all the deceased go there. Whether they live good or bad, it did not matter. They all got there. And in the newer works, the late latter works, 
of the Old Testament, you suddenly find a kind of the idea that there should people should be judged, that they should be rewarded for their good, and that people who live who are doing too bad that they don't deserve to get to a good place. Now, what happened? The thing that happened in between was Plato lived. And Plato wrote the myth of R in his Republic. It's in book 10. The, it's actually the final part. He closes the book with the myth. It's a final part. And he explains there something that was totally uncommon before. He explains that people, they die, and then they get in front of a judge. And there are like four holes. You know, two are at the top and two are at the bottom. And those who are who live a good life, who are judged to heaven, they get to a, to a hole in the top. And those who lived extremely bad lives, they go to a hole in the bottom. It's like a hell. And in the in the heaven, it's like you have a it's a great time you get as a reward for your good life. And in the hell, your soul shall be, let's say, punished for your bad life. And you also find that all the tyrants, the kings who were who just sought for power, who, who did so many struggle, and because they were so bad, they have to live have to live there for much longer time. It shall be a negative example to others. And in the end, now it's interesting. It's not, it's not a final judgment. After some time, the soul come back from the other hole. That's, that's why there are two holes. One is to enter, and another one is the exit. And, uh, and the souls which are coming from heaven, they are pure. They are extremely pure. While those who come from hell, they are very dirty. And, and, then, and actually, now that they meet again, they will celebrate and they will go on a journey. And this journey leads them to a lot cast where they have to choose their new lives. This is very intriguing because it's a kind of recarnation. It's you know, it's not it's not that you are condemned forever, but you have the possibility to choose your new life. And what is even more fascinating is that there are more. That, you know, it's a kind of broadcast. You get like a you get like a number. Where, when is your turn? And there are a lot of models. Actually, the Greek word is paradigm, paradigma. There are par paradigmata. There are lots of life models, and there are more models than souls. Which means that even those, even the soul which comes at last in the row, in the queue there, we are queuing there, and the last one still has a choice. And so you, so the, there's a kind of of messenger. You know, in Greek you say prophet. It's, it's like a prophet, prophet is, but it's not a prophet in a religious sense. He just explains. He's a kind of, he's a kind of person who to, to gives instruction. Is to come now, and the, this kind of messenger says, "Now it's your turn to choose your new life." But there are you have a, you take your time to choose. You can there are lives, all kinds of lives, which means all kinds of lives that you can live. And there are these souls, which are like, that are, that choose uh, very quickly, and souls that take care. And now the first soul in the queue, it comes, 
and takes the first best life because it looks very good to the outside, but the soul did not recognize that actually in the inside that, that it's, it's a tyranny where you will even eat your, up your own kids. Now, what Plato says is this soul came from heaven. Now, what does this say? This soul came from heaven. It's not, a, it's not a person from hell who chooses a bad life. It's the person from heaven who chooses a bad life. Why? Because you probably live a good life without knowing why you live a good life. In other words, it's like you are good, but you don't have real knowledge. You haven't gained a lot of knowledge. So if you, uh, if you don't have a lot of knowledge and you just think like, oh, I was rewarded, then you have no worries anymore. The contrary, if you know like what pain is like, and hell is of course a kind of pain. If you know what pain is a myth, but it's actually not meant to be 100% real. You see it's a myth, but it teaches us something. Plato wants to take an abstract idea and explains it. And Judaism, Jewish scholars, they probably read this myth and they had, and they agreed with the idea that why does everyone go to the same place? Why shouldn't the people be, who, who have a good life have a benefit of a good life? And the people who are the biggest tyrants, why should they, they don't have to care about being tyrants. Isn't this unfair? So you find a certain, these Greek ideas, definitely Greek ideas, found its way into religious writings that ideas, exchanged even in a time with, which was not so fastly globalized and now we know we can be sure that there were certain interactions through traders through merchants they brought ideas they told their stories what they saw in other countries so you can see that because because judaism in its time back then it was it was also very widespread but uh, you should you should see it in its, its historical borders, and you should see Buddhism in its historical borders. You can see there must have been maybe, a, or we can assume there could be a certain kind of connection because even the Greeks, when they went to Afghanistan, there was a Greco a Greco Buddhism. Now they put in their Greek knowledge the Buddhism. So things naturally mixed, and I thought like it's a very why should why should I center myself only on Europe? And on Western philosophy, which I adore on the one hand, but I also adore Chinese philosophy, I adore African philosophy, I adore Judaism. So let's see what they have to offer. That was my thought. So it's very interesting that you trace back Greek philosophy, and you also talked about how you know Juda Judaism came from the land of Sinai or Egypt or the land of Israel and how um, it all kind of traces back to Greek philosophy and how there was an option for um, philosophers to explore the different connections. And then they explored um, the connection between Judaism and the Latin and the Greek texts and how they tried to understand what Judaism, what Jewish philosophy would mean by its own self. What I'm interested in knowing is that if there is any specific way you trace back a certain philosophy, like how do you connect uh, yoga and like Buddhist traditions with Western traditions, for example? 
it's not actually a tracing back. It's just you read different works and you, and you see similarities. And of course you ask like, why are they so similar? That's the first question. And then of course you have to see the backgrounds of the philosophers themselves as far as you know them. Because, or generally the knowledge of that time because for example, Plotinus, you know that Plotinus was traveling. He was traveling eastwards and then he traveled to Rome. So he first studied the kind of Eastern philosophy and then he studied Platonism. And so of course we can assume, we, we also we see that he has a certain in, Eastern influence, but we can assume of course that this is because he traveled. And we find the same like with uh, Meneto, he's not a philosopher, he's a historian, but he came from Egypt and he went to Crete, to Greece and he wrote a very important work about Egyptian history. So what, if you want to know what Greek people knew about Egypt, you look at Moneto. And then of course you can see um, like when did the philosopher live and did he probably read it? Does he take up when he talks about Egypt, does he take up the same story? That's the way you, you, you connect it because you have to see it within its time. And of course, some similarities might just be a coincidence. But if you see the very, very first ideas, like the pre-Socratic ideas, the physical, and the very old Chinese philosophy, and you will see, even though their ideas are very similar, you can assume on the one hand that people at the beginning had the same questions. Also see this in other parts of the world. The first question, of course, is like, where do we live? What is the world made of? Something like this. I mean, this is an essential question. People always ask that. So here, of course, we can, when the ideas at the beginning are very similar, because they were just the first steps, then of course you can be sure that people had the same ideas because they were both uh, at the first steps. But from time to time, when you have the very developed ideas of Lao Tzu, Zhuang Tzu, and you look also to the West, Plato, and you look to the great, great uh, work of the of of, Jew, of Judaism. You see that, of course, that the the, 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 the similarities that some of them are, pros, are possibly through interaction, though they are not like today. You don't go to a, to a online, you don't go online and you just Google a, a certain word and you find it. Of course, you could just use the ideas you had, but when you said about Hasidic philosophy, we are talking about something different because Hasidic philosophy comes a bit later. And it probably has an, uh, a novel origin. And from time to time, it also adapted certain views, you know, from the Greek because simply of the contact with, with Greek people. And so this shows why we see the similarities. We find this, for example, in the Sefer Yetzirah. It's very interesting Jewish mystical work. And we know it's rather, a, it's a Middle Ages work, maybe a proto-Hasidic, because Hasidism as a, as a religious stream did not exist yet. This comes in the 17th century. This is much, much later. We talk about 17th century CE. So the, we have, of course, everything is building on one another. So we can talk about the Sefer Yetzirah as a Middle Ages work as proto-Hasidic. I, I, I proposed this because it influenced the later Hasidic works. 
So it, it, it's a key, it has a key role. And this work, the Sefer Yetzirah itself, seems to be very largely influenced by late ancient views of the ancient Greek, for example. And one key idea is that the world is built out of letters. And what is interesting, if you look in the Greek language, I mean, the work, the work is written in Hebrew, and also the thought is very Semitic. But what is very interesting is the, word, the connection that we see that the person chooses letters. Because you ask, why does the person choose letters? Why shall the world begin with letters? And if you look at the Greek word, which means like substance, it also has the meaning of letter. You, also, you already find a, a certain idea of this in Plato's Timaios, where he, where he makes a wordplay between where he says about something, this is not the first letter, and he actually wants to say this is not the first substance. So you see, there is like, you, you have the idea of a substance, and you have the same word for letter. Maybe you speak another language now, like Hebrew, but you probably heard that in Greek it's the same. And so you get to the idea like, why shouldn't substance and letter, why shouldn't it be the same? Why should, why, why should I mean, you start experimenting with this. And I think this is very, very important that you, that you also look like what could, what could be other sources because we know a lot that Neoplatonism, it had a huge impact on Jewish philosophy in the Middle Ages, like with um, Ibn Gabirol and his Fons Vita, it has a, it has a Neoplatonist influence. Mm. And of course, Ibn Gabirol had a very, very important influence on other thinkers. So you find you find this interconnectedness between different philosophies already in ancient times, but not the way we do it today, but in a different way. But still, you already have a connection. That's indeed very, very interesting uh, to you know equate letters with substance. Um, I was reading your work and. Um, I came across, as I said before, yoga kara Buddhism. And it was under the context that everything is related and nothing would exist independently. So everything depends on the relatability or the relatedness factor in order to exist. How do you uh, align yoga kara Buddhism with that um, empirical chain of thought? Well, at first we have to understand Yogacara Buddhism. The thing is, it's a, it's a kind of a third evolution. It's called the third Dharma wheel. You first have like a, a first Dharma wheel, it's like the first teaching. Then you had a second, which is very largely influenced by Nagarjuna. And then you had the third, it's like a new revolution, a new revolution which was based on Asanga and Vasubandhu, both were probably brothers or half brothers. And they had the idea that we are, that we are, or to put it in a nutshell, that we are not seeing things as they are. Because the idea that Yogacara Buddhism evolved was that we have a kind of storehouse consciousness. It is because it's a kind of, um, you, you come to the world, you get born, and you are, you are still an innocent person, but you make, from the beginning of, the, of, of your birth, you make different experiences. And because it helps you in your life, you save them. It 
save them so they get stored. This is why it's called storehouse consciousness. All your experience gets stored. Even if you think you forgot something, never forget anything, you have a very, very intensive memory. We probably are not aware of the situation actively, but in, it, it's passively there. So let's make an example. Let's take a girl called, give me a name, Sanjana. So now let's say that Sanjana uh, is, is, a, is, a, is, not, is a positive girl and she has a great boyfriend, but he always has to do overwork. Now, now Sanjana doesn't think anything bad, but one day Sanjana finds out that this person, this boyfriend is betraying her. So of course you save this experience what is a sign of being betrayed? That person is never there, always has to overwork. I mean, you, you get this key somehow. Now, Sanchana is happily in the next relationship. Now, when this person gets, has certain signs like of overworking, of not being able to be there, always traveling, whatever, Sanchana will automatically doubt because she knows from her past experience, in her mind, she has, she has a certain feeling. While probably another girl, Mm, let's talk, let's call her Sarah. She never had this experience and when her boyfriend has to overwork, she doesn't think anything bad. But Sanjana gets worried because she has a bad experience. So even though she probably does not think about this relationship, best relationship actively, the signs, when the signs come up, it's like a cue. So when, you, when, so when the new boyfriend has to overwork, it's like a cue and it triggers something. It triggers the experience like, it's, it's like a, it's like a cue that says, here's something not okay, because it's like a warning. And this kind of storehouse consciousness is very important for human beings because it helps you adapt to things. Like if you touch a cactus and you get hurt, you will never touch a cactus again, probably, because you know it hurts. So, it, so these experiences help you to, to, to adjust to this world. But on the other hand, they are just your mind phenomena because you see that Sanjana thinks like, oh, my boyfriend could be betraying me or even is betraying me if you, if you say that Sanjana is a really emotional person. And the other person like Sarah, she doesn't think anything bad, although both are at exactly the same situation. Both have boyfriends who do overwork, but still Sanjana does a different. Mm, uh, she appraises the... It has an appraisal of the situation in a different way than Sarah. So at first, we have to know that everything we think to know from the world also has a kind of experience inside. That's the one thing. So you have, you, so you, so you don't see the world as it is. You see a kind of mind phenomena. That's the one thing. And one thing human beings tend to believe is that things exist for themselves because, of course. You have to you have to cognize things, which means you have to know that uh, that a f what a thing is. But this appears like that we think that certain things ex just exist. They are there, and they, and we don't see why they are there. And the and idea here of Yogacara Buddhism uh, is actually that there are like three natures. And the first the the first nature is that we think that everything exists for themselves. But when we actually think of it, we see how things relate to other things. For example, if, 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 I, if I see you, I see you as a person, as a person who exists for herself. 
but I will probably not have in mind that you just exist because of coming together of your parents. So you don't exist independently. You existed because your parents came together and they existed because their parents came together. And so that you already have a certain chain of dependence. And then of course, uh, uh, your like your, your flowers are not just there in the room. They're there because you put them there. So they have a cause why they are there. It's because someone put them there. And then there's in the end, you have a third nature which shows you that actually all the categories that we do, they help us probably, yes, but they are not, but they are my they are mind-made categories. They are not natural categories. We categorize things, we put things in boxes because it helps us to survive. I think psychologists call this framing. We frame the world, the world, but this does not mean that the world is really like this. And the problem is that if we make, for example, negative experience, or if we are in a bad mood or in any pessimist way, we probably see things different than another person. And we suffer even though we don't have to suffer. And this is why we probably need a re-evaluation. And this is all the thing behind it. True. Uh, I mean, the mind phenomenon, as you mentioned, is uh, something that Plato's theory of soul also, um, uh, you know, concludes that um, the real essence is the psyche itself. Yes, yes. and so but, but actually, actually, the real essence to him is idea, and you have to understand that idea in in Greek has a different meaning than we have idea today. Idea it's it's the same from the same same root than eidos, form, nature. So this means that ideas for Plato are the real form or the real nature who exist in the realm of the ideas. And we live in the perceptual, perceptual world and everything, everything exists here, seemingly, but it is not really here because to a certain degree, they are just a kind of shadows or they're not true being, but they share part of the idea which exist in the realm of ideas, which are being as being or being in itself, it's true being. And so it is that because the question is very important. It's not just some kind of, of making up in mind. I, I mean, it's, a, it's of course, we, we, we see things because we make them, we see them through our mind, but Plato's idea is not just some fantasy in mind, I want to say. The point is that Plato re realized that if you have, for example, a chair, you see, always you recognize a chair always as chair, which means that a chair must have something that makes it intellectual as a chair, you know? So there must be an, a kind of model of a chair, or there must be something which is which comes before, which so that you can always see when you see a chair that it is a chair. And this, so this is so this is why he says that there is a share of the idea, because he realized that on the one hand, we always see another chair. It's not the same chair, it's another chair. But on the other hand, you are able, when you, when you, after you learn, after you recognize that something's a chair, you will always be able to recognize other chairs, even if they look completely different. You know, today we have designer chairs, and still we, rec we recognize them as chair. And the question is, how are we able to recognize something uh, so what so what is in the thing that we recognize it as such? And because every chair is different, the ideal chair or the best perfect chair cannot be on, in this world. 
because otherwise, if you destroy this perfect chair, there is no more chair. So of course, he thinks like that this must be something which is beyond of us, a kind of chair which we cannot draw, which we cannot imagine as a in its purest form, but something which we which we automatically have in mind when we when we design a chair, because when we when we create a chair, we know that what a chair has to be, and this what the chair has to be. This this particular this is the idea the form that which makes the chair being a chair. True, uh, Plato talked about uh, ideas, forms, uh, also taking from the text from Socrates. He defined ideas he defined the psyche like he gave a prefer like he gave the idea of psyche um the first uh i would say emphasis within the philosophical text that psyche is the essence uh, sure you and so you, that's you, how get, you get two the things from the psyche because the question is of course if there's a chair in the ideal world and there's an actual chair then how do you get access to that ideal chair? So of course, this is the psyche, this is the soul. Psyche is Greek for soul, so psyche is the soul. So his idea is that you get to true knowledge through the soul, because this is the way you get to that realm, because you yourself have to stay in the perceptional world. You cannot become a kind of over-human yourself who gets beyond being human. So. But so he says that the soul has a connection to its root, to the divine. And through this root, you get the true knowledge because the soul is able to grasp the idea. And so, yes, it's, it's an essential part. What is more interesting is that you probably, you have, you have two things to know about this. At first, it has language. You express something. And this means, as I think, we have a problem here because Language, the words, they are just arbitrarily. I mean, of course, they have, have the etymology and whatever, but the composition of words itself, they could be differently. I mean, it's a convention that you call a cow a cow. You could also call a cow an elephant. And if everyone called a cow an elephant, it would become an elephant because it's the word, that's the word assigned to it. So that's the first thing, language. And the second, of course, is then the cognition because you have to be able to connect that which you perceive with the word that you assign to it. So, and here comes the idea of the mind phenomena, what I, what I want to bring inside. You can see a thing from far away. Like you say, hey, there's an elephant because you cannot see this, this thing straight, but you think it has a bit of shape. And if you come closer, you see, actually, no, I was wrong. It was a cow. Because when you were far away, you, you, you saw the shape, you didn't see it clearly, but you saw this the things inside which you usually which you usually um, um, connect with an elephant. But then you can be you can say when you get closer, you see what it actually is because you see now the things which make a cow a cow. So at first we are able to make wrong cognitions. We have many examples, many examples, for example, with nights in the scenarios. Like I once read the example that there are people, for example, when they are in the forest and they see a kind of a, 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 a part of wood, maybe because maybe it's our, our natural instinct that the first thing we see is a snake and we go back. We go way back because we, are, we, we don't want to be 
bitten, you know. But then we, we after we calm down for a second, we look at it and we see, oh, it wasn't a snake, it was a part of wood. So at first, so we are able, our mind can be tricked. Actually, all kind of, you know, all these, these great magicians who work with our mind, who trick our mind, where we think something happened, it didn't happen this way, but because our mind thinks this way, the illusion works. And this, this is a great thing. So our mind is not perfect. And our perception, uh, this is cause of our perception because our perception are just instruments. They are, they are, they are not, our perception, they are not uh, always the same. And this is very important because every individual has its own perception. This means if I see a thing and you see a thing, you have your own eyes and I have my own eyes. Even if we agree that we both saw a cow, you will see the cow in a different than, way than me, but because we both have different eyes. It, it, must it must necessarily be this way. Even if we describe the cow in the same way, uh, we, probably you just have a different, probably you're, you're white, when you see the white cow, your white looks slightly different than my white, but because we both see the same attributes, somehow we both agree that there's a white cow. But and on the one hand, but on, but still we have our own way of perception because the, because every human being has its own perception, and this is also the way the different illusions work. If you have a cartoon and you can see two things inside, some people see the one thing and other people see the other thing. There are many of these games of illusion because you have our own perception. That, that's the one thing. This is why, why we have a problem when we talk about truths. This is, a, this is a clear problem when we talk about truths because you, what you see, you don't ask yourself every day, did I really see it like that? You know, you don't doubt these things. But for example, a lemon, a lemon to you is sour. You don't doubt that a lemon is sour. But imagine you had a kind of defect and you cannot taste anything. Then a person who cannot taste anything will ask you, why does it matter to you that a lemon is sour? I mean, a person cannot imagine anything about the sour and you, will be, you won't be able to really explain it because it's just a kind of taste. It's something you have to feel. And, but this other person cannot feel it. And even when you both agree that a lemon is sour because that other person can taste it, that person has a, his own tongue, and this means its own way to percept that his sour. So, just, so part of, of it is because we have our own perception, but because of the conventions, we know this what we perceive when we eat a lemon is sour. No matter how, how this sour feels to you, because we know that we call this kind of taste sour, we agree on it. So this is just an agreement by conventions. But maybe you don't taste it as sour as I do if we were able to look at it objectively. I mean, you know? No, true. Definitely perception within awareness is a factor or element to consider here. Like what I find very interesting is that the mind phenomena can also be traced back to esoteric religions. Um, and by esoteric, I mean mostly spiritual based religions like Buddhism, but also to in religions like Hinduism, Taoism, um, 
there's a, definitely a trace of mind phenomena or the soul being the ultimate essence uh, traced back from the Greeks all the way to the Eastern uh, philosophy. Uh, I feel like it's all, it's like the main element there. And the, mind the interesting thing is that they all acknowledge this. If you have Taoism, you have like, there's, there's the Tao and this is like the true being. And the interesting thing is the Tao cannot be seen, heard, heard, or exactly felt. It, it, it is just there. So you have to experience it, but it is, but it is the it is a kind of real reality in which there is no more, no more desires. It's just you can just get there. In the same way, it is even it is the same way you find it with Plotinus. For for Plato, the two realms, ideas and and the perception of world are separated. But you know, Plotinus, he, 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 uh, he studied in the East. So he also wanted to know how to get to the good, how to get to, to this realm. And he proposed something like the one, because he also sees like there's, because you know, through Platonism, you see that there is the reality and there's the human realm. And we, and of course, we want to become more perfect. We want to get, we kind of want to get to this realm and we can't. Philo goes this way, or Philo, he goes this way to say even there's no way to get there. We, we cannot, we cannot get there. And he, and of course, he has to, uh, he has a trouble with this. He has to explain how can God work on our world because he lives in the world, of, in the realm of ideas, of course. And he proposes that several forces, dynamis, are acting through in this world. So the phenomena that we see in nature, they are messages by God. He works with his forces on us to to, to communicate with us. And then, of course, you know, and in Greek, so you have the Greek, the one, Tohen. It's it's like it's the one. It's it's not describable. And what a surprise! You find this the same in later in Hasidic in Hasidic Judaism. There's something they call Ein Sof. It's the thing without end. It has no end, but it even it cannot be described. Not even with a with, not even with the slightest letter. Not even with the slightest type letter. It's just a point which is there. And so you find you so you find all this, but what all of them have intriguingly common is the importance of force. So they saw, of course, this is a way of observation because you saw what forces can do. You see the natural forces. You see what thunders can do. You see you see what waters can do. So you find an important thing in Chinese philosophy is force. An important thing. In European and in, in Greek philosophy is force. An important thing in African philosophy is force. It's very interesting. Mm, maybe you heard of Placid Temples. He was a Belgian missionary who was in, uh, in Congo in the 1940s. He was stationed there as a Christian missionary. And of course, what he did is he examined the people, the Banto people who lived in his region. It was not far away from Rwanda, I think. And what he saw there is that people, they have had an interesting concept. They say that force is life. It means they, their definition of life was as more force something has, as more liveliness, which to them means that force is being and being is force and temples even goes further and uh, shows um, that they had a different concept of the soul. 
to them, it was not man or mankind or human, a human being. Let's take a normal human being. It consists of shadow and breath. Very interesting, shadow and breath. Because um, the breath is something like this. So it, it, to me, or if I want to, uh, I, of course, I tried, you cannot put it one-to-one -one in, in, in Greek terms. But if you want to compare it, the breath has something like this, this soul, this, this thing that, that has to be there to be alive. Because, you, because when a human breathes, you know that person is alive. But the body, it's just a shadow. It's just a shadow. And so the human being is just inside the, the human being is just a manifestation. And inside the human being, there's a kind of small human being. So there's a man and there's a small man behind that man. Because you have the trouble of, 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 of talking about human beings when they are dead. You know, the problem is a human being. What is a human being? It's a living being. And of course, the question is, if a person dies and the soul leaves the body, or there is no more breath, you know, the question is, is this thing that remains, the body, is this still a human being? Because a part of the human being is to be active. And this person, you know, it will, it will the dead person is, is, will be distracted and whatsoever through, through the natural process. So, of course, this is, a, it's an interesting question. Of course, I think that also dead human beings have, there's the right of the dead. They should also have the human right to be buried with honor and so on. But to understand all this, to get to the point is to find everywhere in the world the idea that there must be a kind of unity or that there must be something above. And of course, this some, somehow above must be able to communicate with you. And this is through force. Of course, this force does not, need, this force does not come, have to come from a personal God. For example, for the if you see traditional, if for example if you read Zhuangzi, you find one thing. If you find the nature there, it's just it's just working. It's 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 nature, so it's not a question like who is like is nature working on its own or is someone working on its nature? But there must be something that that is just there. And here we also have a very interesting word when we go to nature. Because I think there are like two ways of nature. Also, they are, although they are very close, but you find nature in the Western sense, the natura. It's just that what is there, and culture is the opposite. That is that which man adds to nature. So nature is that which is there without that what man added to it. And then you have nature in the Chinese sense. It's zhan. And what does zhan mean? Si means self, and zhan means something like thus. So it's a self, it's just a self there. The idea is that it is, you know, it's in a, it's a dynamic process. It's always, it's always, it's not just there and does nothing, but it's always moving. It's always moving. It is a kind of fluidity, something we don't see anymore in the Western term nature, although it was there in the past, because you find it in the pre-Socratic philosophy, you find like Heraclitus who says Pantare, everything is moving, everything is everything is in a kind of fluidity, it's a dynamic thing. So the idea, the Western idea of nature is a very young one because you have something inside, it's the static view. And while the Chinese view is more the dynamic view. 
and why I've, I, I haven't, I have a thesis why our view of nature became so static, though I am not sure if it's right, but I can, I can propose it and maybe, maybe we can see if, if this is, is something true, but because one thing we see in the last centuries is that nature seemingly has a use to us. Uh, so we want to exploit nature, we want to exploit oil, gas and everything, something our ancestors, I mean, our ancestors long, long time ago, they weren't this, this kind of exploitive than nowadays, we are nowadays. So if, if you just see nature as something lifeless, something, you know, of course, a tree grows only for us, all the things that grow, they are, they are only growing for us, then it is easy to exploit it. So, you know, you don't have to have a guilty consciousness that you destroy something because it's, it's, it's just there. But if you have a dynamic process, it means something grows, it is in a balance, it is in harmony. It means like everything is in a balance, in a harmony. And if you get inside this, it means if you interfere in it, you change this. And it is very funny because in aesthetic view, you don't have one problem, and it is a problem, but it is a problem that we see right now. Because the problem that you don't have in aesthetic view is that you have nature and you can exploit it endlessly. Because it is just, it is just there for us. And we don't have to worry what happens because it is just there. If if we cut a tree, that tree grows again. So we are not doing, we have the feeling that we don't do anything wrong. So, but if you have a dynamic process, you know that every missing tree means that something is not there, that, that was there. And of course, if there are not, not if you, if all the trees disappear, then it has an impact on our climate because there'll be, when, the, when the trees were there, there was a balance, a natural balance. And if you hit this natural balance, of course, this also has an impact on our environment. And this also means that our climate changes, something which is not depicted in a static view. And we see that the dynamic view, that the climate change is real. So people now ask like, why did we ignore it for so long? And the funny thing is we ignored it for so long because we were not aware anymore that nature is in a balance and that we are destroying this balance because we just saw nature as something given. Definitely the imbalance of the natural habitat which is going on currently, which has definitely, uh, if not alerted, then um, given people the benefit of the doubt that it's not okay to uh, mess with the nature because it just basically takes everything and makes a chaos out of it because it's it's nature that we are mingling with. But uh, like you talked about man-making culture, I sometimes think whether within this culture and nature, is it, do we still have, do we still need to have a religion? Like, is there still a need for religion within this globalized informative uh, culture that manhood has made? I think right now, just right now, I don't know how this will be in the future, but right now I think we need religion more than ever before for a simple reason. Religion has important factors of, 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 of mankind. Of course, in the past it was, it, you know, you have to see the religious history. On the one hand, in the past it started, people saw them big phenomena. They saw 
thunders and storms, and they could not explain it. And so, of course, it was always described in mythology as a battle of the gods. Because, of course, how can one god give you some give you the condition to plan something and the next day he, he destroys it. So the beginning was a polytheism. Out of this, once the gods are established, it is difficult to get rid of them. So the next step was henotheism. You, you still find this uh, uh, in, if you read biblical texts, uh, you find this by the wording, because in the past, uh, for example, for the Canaanites, the highest god was El. And this was just, so the word for gods was Elohim. It's a plural form. But when from time to time, the people thought like, people were aware that there should, should just be one God or that, that there is just one God. So uh, equaled Elohim, the plural word is the one, you know? And the, and the words all just, the different names, Yahweh, Adonai, it all, Shaddai, it all became just, Different words for, for the one God. It's just a name, it's just a way to name to name God. But it's referring to the same God. We find the same in other places. For example, Buddhism was very polytheist in the past. There are also atheist form of Buddhism, but we also find a new uh, evolvement of monotheism, for example, in Korea or Indonesia. In Korea, there's a big cult of Guanin or Kwan Im in Korean, which means that the different Buddhas are just mirrored in this Bodhisattva of compassion. It's just, it's a, it's a kind of, it's, it's the one who is compassionate. In, uh, in Indonesia, I think there's a kind of Adi Buddha. It's a way of the one who was there before everyone else was there, but it's going back to a source. And you find this also in Hinduism, very interesting. In the past, there were different struggling gods, and one suddenly got, got importance in history, it was Brahma. So there were the Brahmin, the ones who supported Brahma. So of course there were also other groups, and, and there are also people who, who, who think that there is another, is another uh, one, but th there's the idea that there should be one who is above the others. So you find this idea of monotheism is uh, growing, and there is a, there's a Counter theory by Yehiskel Kaufman. Mm. He wrote that monotheism is the kind of critical response to polytheism, which is the reason for him why he, why he says that Judaism has a special position because it was monotheist from the beginning, which is a bit tricky because Judaism, it was always monotheist. Yes, that's right. But Judaism evolved out of other traditions. And we find these kinds of traditions still in biblical texts. So, um, or it traces, we find them in biblical texts. So of course, Judaism also evolved out of polytheism, but as a new religion. So Kaufman is not right here. Mm. The interesting thing is that the term Israelite, it comes in a time as a way to distinguish. It's very interesting because Christine Hayes uh, from the Yale University said in one in her lectures that the ancient Hebrew, the way the texts are written, is no different from the ancient way Canaanites spoke. So Canaanites and Israelites were probably in the beginning the same tribe, but there was from the, at a certain time the Israelites 
distinguished themselves from the Canaanites. They didn't want to have to do anything with them anymore. So, the, so the, of course, Israel, the Israelites, their religion was a critical response to polytheism. Yes, that's clear because they said, we reject your cult, we reject your gods, we have, a, we have something different now. But the way to get there was a polytheist one. So in the beginning, they all believed the same until some said like, hey, this cannot be true. So we believe that we have found a different truth or we have a different religion now. So we have to distinguish ourselves from themselves because their cult is wrong. So this is how this started, the, the religion started. But in general, polytheism was at the, in the world at first. Then we had monotheism, and then of course, uh, monotheism. And nowadays, we live in times where we think like God is not necessary anymore because you know everything, but that's ridiculously wrong because we just know a very, very, very tiny amount of what we know. And even though it even gets worse, we will come to a point where we cannot know. I mean, knowledge always goes forward, but in, in our times, we have a limit of this knowledge, you know? And I remember that the first guest of your podcast said that, for example, artificial intelligence will be able to reveal the unseen. Now, let's say it like this. The question is twofold. At first is, do we want to see the unseen? Because we probably we'll see things we don't want to see. And the second is, um, if we see the unseen or if we are able to reveal it, are we really able to reveal everything because even if art, even if this kind of intelligence is able to learn itself, it's not all knowing from the beginning. So it also just has its its knowledge and its its own patterns in kinds of algorithms, but it will take some time until it gets smarter and smarter. So the question is, why do we need God? First, um, if we take away God from the people, we don't solve any problem. This is something Nietzsche saw already. This is something Kant saw already. Even Kant, though he um, kind of showed counter arguments against the arguments for God, of, uh, especially the ontological. He showed a grave problem with the ontological argument, but at the same time, he himself proposed a moral argument so he said he wasn't satisfied with the arguments for God, but he did not propose non-existence of God. The same thing you find with Nietzsche. Nietzsche, when Nietzsche says God is dead, he does not say God does not exist. He just says God is dead. It's, it's a kind of like the religion which proposes God. It, it's not satisfying anymore, but this does not mean that God himself is, is non-existent. He just says that God, in the sense the church teaches it, is in trouble. And you find it also with Alan Watts. Alan Watts said a funny thing once in, a, in his lecture. He said that like people tend to believe that there is a one big energy and they write various names for it, like God, like Tao, like Brahma. But especially in the West, people get so many funny as associations God, that we are bored with it. And so we try new names. So of course, God is twofold. On the one hand, it is clearly right when Feuerbach said that we project our God. It means 
like Wiegefort attributes that we wish to have. Like he's all knowing, he's all, all compassionate. He, he has, he, we get sick, God cannot get sick. So it's all, but yet he receives all these qualities that we wish to have. So of course, we all, God is like a superhuman, but this is just the social quality. This is not the ontological quality, because if we project something to God, we cannot be sure that it exists this way. Um, but we can see God in a different way, because I, even I said that it's sometimes difficult whether we shall be satisfied with attributes to God. I don't, I don't know if they're good or bad. I am neutral on this point because I'm, I'm not well into this material yet. See something very interesting in history of philosophy. There is the God of the philosophers. It means many philosophers they believed in God, not because not, not like in a conventional God, like the Christian God or whatever God, but they had an idea that there must be something, that there must be something beyond us. Um, for example, let's take it's very interesting. Let's take Al Farabi. He is. Um, he is. Uh, he has a work which is called uh, Al uh, Al Madina Al Fadila, which means um, the perfect state. And it is no surprise that it sounds like the Republic. It's the kind of it's his version of Plato's Republic. It's like he, he, thousands of thousand years later, he makes his own idea of of a state. Um, uh, and it's, he starts with God. He says, he talks, the first thing he talks about is uh, the first substance. And so for him, God is the first substance. And he, it is, why is, he, is it the first substance? It is that which comes in the beginning. And why is it that which comes in the beginning? Because there was nothing before. So we say that God is the beginning. And as such, he is one. And he, of course, he had to ask himself, why is he one? Of course, in, in Islam, you have the idea of the Tawid of the oneness, the ultimate oneness, but he has to explain it philosophically. So he says, if you have a two, if you have two, two beginnings, then there must be a, something which existed before, which created two separate things. So it's one again, because the beginning must be, it must be um, a kind of perfect, it must have perfection because you cannot have two different things in the beginning, because if you have two different things in the beginning, then there must be something before, that has both because how can because otherwise the two different beginnings could not have a share of attributes, which means they are not they lack perfection and the beginning must have a certain perfection of which everything involves. So there's the one before which is God, and and of course he, he shows this in various kinds. It's 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 over some chapters. It's very interesting. And let's see Kant. Kant says that uh, he, he has in his, it's, it's very interesting, his, his third critique, Kritik der Urteilskraft. It's very interesting because in this work, he is troubling with something. On the one hand, he says that nature is on its own. As, as I proposed before, nature is on its own. It's, it's like, it's, it's determinated. It's always, it has its laws and it's, things are growing on themselves on their laws. So it, it is clear how a plant will develop uh, because every plant of this kind develops in the same way. So it, there's a law how a rose looks like and how it will develop and so on. So everything in nature is determined and 
Wilfred Kant, these things exist out of themselves, so he doesn't need a word at this point, but he says things are, they are unguided, but, but they, are, they are laws, and we are, human beings have the ability to see this, so they see nature. Uh, on the other hand, there's a problem, morality. He says that people are, have the possibility to act morally independent, are morally free. They can, they can do choices how to act morally. And you see, this is a contradiction to the determination in nature. So you, on the one hand, you have the natural determination. On the other hand, you have freedom. Now, how do these, go, how do, how do these two get together? So in his third critique, he says that actually both would act to a common ground. And, he's, and when he says, and he goes further and says, I, I do not define further this common ground because it's beyond us. It's a kind of sublime. It's a kind of, we could possibly say divine. I don't know if this is a good term, but no, there's something beyond. So both have the same ground. And I mean, this could be an argument if, if, that, he, that he takes. Because, because he does, because he also gives a moral argument, which says, and which is very important, which says there are moral implications if you believe in God. Because, um, and I think this is a very important point. Because I personally think that if we lived in a world without God, we would not have less wars. Because many people say we would not, if there was no God, there was no belief in God and no religion then we would not have all these terrorists who are fighting for God. Okay, it might be true, but here's the but. As long as there is a belief in God, we think morally twice. It's because if there's a world without God, we know that we can do whatever we want, because if we are not caught by the state law, then we are free. You know, then, then we don't have to justify in front of anyone. But if we have in mind, that our actions might have consequences, even if you're not caught, you think twice of how you act. Or in other words, like if you have in mind that, you, that there could be an instance, a more powerful instance, then you probably have at least a bit of fear that you don't hurt others on purpose. Because if you know that you are the one who can hurt others, because you know that nothing will happen to you. Then, then you know you can do what you want because you don't have any moral justification anymore. So the moral act, so you can have a moral argument saying we need God for a healthy society. But that could be one explanation. There are even further explanations. It's we uh, that's the social one that I said before. We also need uh, we need him because. We live in very insecure times. And of course, we are, as I said, we are limited beings. Even Chuang Tzu said this. He, he said, a frog in the well cannot conceive the ocean. You know, because a frog in the well, he, 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 he never saw an ocean. He has no idea of the ocean because he never was there. So we are human beings. We live on the planet Earth. We are limited, which means just because we cannot know whether there is something. Of course, we can reject it and we can say like, here's nothing because we cannot see it. And as long as nobody can prove it to me, it's okay. I mean, I cannot say anything against them because they are, because they, I cannot disprove them. On the other hand, if I say I believe in God, then I mean, in a reasonable way, because you have to see the difference. That's the God of the philosophers. It's not the way of 
blind you're following any relation or blindly following any guru who says you have to do this or that, but if you follow reasonably, if you say there's a God, like in the beginning, or a, a kind of a kind of uh, source or creator, maybe we don't know, but you, you acknowledge we don't know because religion is the unknown. You know, it's it's it, it, it's it's the counterpart of knowledge. And still, you can it's it's you have a personal use, and this this is the very important thing. And then, of course, those who are atheists cannot disprove me because they can just give me arguments against the existence of God. But I can always say, like, okay, but maybe there is someone, and maybe this someone listens to me. And we live in such insecure times right now. I think that the hope for someone to listen to us, even if he even if he actually can't listen to us, but we don't know that he can listen to us, at least the hope that he is there can be a, a certain help. Um, you already find this idea, for example, in the Sohar, that um, the traditional understanding that many people have on the fall of man is that Eve took the apple and then humanity got doomed. That's actually a very, very Christian view. It, ne it never was meant to be this way. Originally, for example, Sadlatsak, he proposed that the apple is something very precious. You know, you, because you can have anything from that garden and the apple is something very precious. So you still don't, so it's a kind of overconsumption. You have everything you have in that garden, but you, it's still not enough. You want that very thing that you cannot have. So it's a kind, you know this, it's a kind of overconsumption. And if you always want more and more and more at some time, it falls apart. So it could be understood that way. But the Sohar has a very intriguing account According to Daniel Matt, who has analyzed the Soha for so many years, he translated it from different manuscripts and made a usable English version because it's a work you cannot simply understand just by, by looking at it or reading. Um, he said that the Soha proposes a revolutionary thought that it was not God who drove out human beings from the paradise, but actually we, throw, we pushed away God. And you, you, you can imagine what, what kind of consequences this is. By the way, it doesn't sound this illogical as you may think, because when you read the Bible, I always get stuck about one thing. God made a garden, and there were four rivers, and at least two of the rivers we identified on this earth. And we also identified the countries mentioned there on this earth. So why should the paradise be equally to these countries here on the earth? So it, it makes sense if you read it. And so what does this mean? If we live on a, on a precious place, if our planet, if we see it as a paradise, as a precious place, what does it mean? It means that we are responsible for destroying the paradise because it's up to us how we treat the planet. And so the Soas, it, it says like the people, they want to get back to the, they want to find the lost connection to God because we find a lot of trouble in this earth, which God probably did not want, at least if you believe in the old scriptures. So we want to have this security back or this, um, yeah, we, we, want, we want to have, we want to get 
this lost connection. So we search for where he is, but the most, most convincing argument gave Hegel. He said that religion, you know, the content of religion is revealed in the form of transmission, which means we are educated. We, we, we learn the revelation in our school and parents, what's, from parents whatsoever. So we, it's a transmitted version. But religion itself is not transmitted. It exists already in us. Because human beings have the, at, at least right now, it is believed that human beings naturally tend to have a kind of belief. Even if you believe not to believe, you have a kind of belief. So human beings, they tend to search for something. And of course, the question is, why are human beings searching for something, even if, they, if everybody has an own vision of it? But why are people searching for something? I mean, if, if religion was useless, you could just say, I don't believe, and it, 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 it's done. But seemingly, if you say you don't believe, you first have made yourself many reasons. You first have thought about it very, very deeply, which means you search for something. So the idea of that, that Hegel gave that there are that there that there's a natural tendency to get to to search for for religion that there's a, a religious that there's a kind of wish in us to find something beyond us i think this shows that we should we should at least we should at least um, continue uh, to see it this way the problem is just the way in which we believe because Religion today has a very negative connotation. It is often regarded to be anti-scientific, anti-progressive, but that's not necessary. That's not necessarily. I mean, many, many great scientists, they, they believed in God. I mean, you can look at Newton, you can look, you can look at many others. Uh, that, that all these great, all these great people, they believed in God and yet they made discoveries. So seemingly the belief in God itself cannot be the problem. No? So that's the one thing. So it's so as long as science is bound to any particular religion, you still you are still able to make discoveries through through your mindset because maybe you have maybe your religious mindset gives you something. Now I, I make an example, it's very, very intriguing. When you take a look at the UN general secretaries in the, in the list. You take a look at the list. You find two things. First, you find that everyone had a kind of belief. I mean, a kind of religion. For example, Hamaskiot, he was a very esoterical person. Ban Ki-moon, uh, he's a kind of Christian Buddhist influenced. You know, uh, so yeah, they all they all had had a kind of religion because it seems, at least to me, it seems that if you have a religion, you still have a vision because you you think like okay, you have your beliefs, and as long as you have beliefs, you are still aspiring or striving for something. So it's it's rather positive. And the second thing you find with them is that all the UN general secretaries either lived during a time of revolution or were or were involved in some kind of leftist movement, which is also interesting because if you lived during a time of revolution, it means you lived during a time of change. And if you're a leftist, you are often for social justice or for, for the equality of humanity, or but you, are, you have human ideals. So what both have, in, so what they have in common is they have visions, 
regions for a change, and they want justice. And of course, if you have such an office, of course you want justice for the world, you want peace for the world. So of course, these two things are there. And I think religion, give off it. I see it from two sides, because there was a time when I was younger, I was a strict atheist, no, really strict. And now I'm a kind of person who believes in God. So what, what changed, I think that the belief in God right now, maybe it changes in the future again, and I don't believe anymore. I don't know. I cannot say now. But right now, what it gives me today is that it gives me a certain, um, a certain hope and also a hope to be able to change something, but also to inspire people because, uh, because I realized that without God, nothing gets better. You know, you just get more trouble. And you, see, you already see this from Nietzsche when he says God is dead in his, in his, if you read his aphorism number 125 in the Joyful Wisdom, it's exactly the point. It's like, just because you change the paradigm, it doesn't mean that now the world will automatically be on a better track. So if you, are re if you say like, okay, for me, I'm not a person who takes relation literally, but who takes, um, who always goes the reasoned way, who takes, who takes this as first, but you let yourself inspire by religion. Then it's totally fine because even the ancient people, they saw religion as an inspiration. You see this, you see this for Philo. Philo was a philosopher, a Platonist, but he was Jewish and he, for him, the, the texts, the Tanakh, it was, of course, very important. And for him, it was rather allegorical. It means, for example, he proposed that Adam represents the news and Eve the Isthesis. Of course, we can, we can struggle about this view, but he saw a kind of that all this has just some meaning behind. And you also find this with Hasidic, with, with Hasidic philosophy. The idea is not to take very literally what is written there, but to find out the meaning behind what is written there. And this is also very important because Hasidism, what does it mean? It has the word chesed inside, which is happy for compassion, benevolent. And what is Buddhism about? Compassion. You can, you can believe in Buddhism or you can be a Buddhist, whether you believe in one God or no God or two gods. For me, so the, the, the good thing is you can take the Buddhist ideas and you can still be Jewish or Christian or what, what or any other religion. So because it because they have things in common, because religion itself itself, you know, it, it says like. Jesus, though, are the sinner's friend. So the problem is, on the one hand, we condemn the sinners. And on the other hand, we say, but well, we should be compassionate and whatever. So what do we want to be? So the question is not, do we need religion? The question is, how to use religion in the right way? That's the thing I think is important. Yes, it makes a lot of sense that a cousin is someone who goes beyond the letter of the law now. Like, I understand your chain of reasoning and the argument for God, and it's very interesting, and it was very interesting to have you on the show. Um, thank you so much for coming on the Naked Arab podcast. Thank you so much. <laughs>